Welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast, which is an approved basis SEPA endorsed resource. Today, welcome Isis Holt to the podcast. Isis is an Australian Paralympic athlete competing in the T35 sprint events. Some of Isis' greatest accomplishments have been winning two gold medals in the IPC Athletics World Championships in 2015 in Doha and in 2017 in London in the 100m and 200m T35 events. Winning silver medals in the Rio 2016 Paralympics in the 100m and 200m T35 events as well as bronze in the women's 4x100m relay T35-38. Winning silver in medals in Tokyo 2020 Paralympics in 100m and 200m T35 events Outside of sport, Isis is currently studying a bachelor's degree in behavioural science at Queensland University of Technology. So let's welcome Isis to the podcast. Hi. How, How are you? you? Yeah, good. How are you guys? Yeah, good. It's so weird because it, it seems really dark in your background right now and it's bright as hell here in, the, in <laughs> Europe. So uh, major yeah. time difference. <laughs> I'm all bright and early in the UK, so <laughs> no, I love it, but... A great place we like to start with uh, our guests and for the listeners to get to know you is if you just give us a brief overview of your journey to date. So from growing up to where you are now, who is uh, Isis Holt? Okay. Um, so I, do you want me to jump right into it or do you? Straight into it. Yeah, straight in. Um, so I, I grew up in Melbourne. Um, I went to school like anyone else and then when I got to around grade six um I'm not sure what that is for you guys but um it's sort of late primary school for us um I joined the the school athletics program and initially I just kind of joined for something to do it was just fun and that's why I went um and then the the guy who ran the program at the time ended up being my my first coach and he came up to me one day and basically asked if I wanted to try racing one weekend. Um, my first answer was no, <laughs> definitely not. Um, I, having grown up with CP, cerebral palsy, um, I wasn't super into sport as a kid. I, I was active and I really enjoyed um, equestrian, of all things, actually. Um, but, yeah, competing in sport never really occurred to me. And he was the one who sort of introduced me to to Paralympic sport. And um, that obviously it completely changed my life. So I decided eventually to go down and race one weekend. And um, I that was when I qualified for my first nationals and I was 13 at the time. Um, then I went to compete at those nationals and qualified for the world championships the following year. Um, so then... Yeah, everything happened pretty quickly after that. I was 14 at my first major world championships in Doha. Um, it was the first time I'd ever been overseas, the first time my parents had ever been overseas. So it was it was huge for all of us. Um, and there I, um, I broke the world record in both of my events, which was the T35-100 and T35-200. Um, the T35 is just the categories they use to... Um, differentiate between the athletes and their disabilities. Um, so that was that was pretty pretty big and overwhelming for me at the time. And then from there, I qualified for my first Paralympic Games in 2016, and I was 15 at those games. And then um, we went on to the London World Champs, which happened to be and still are probably the best World Champs or Games overall that I've ever been to. They were incredible. Um, and then from there, Com Games um, on the Gold Coast in 2018. And then I took a year off to finish high school, um, got through year 12, got into uni um, and the courses I wanted to be doing and then decided to come back to sport. And that's kind of where, where I'm at now. Obviously, we all had a pretty crazy 2020. And then um, I yeah moved to Brisbane. And so now I, I live in Brisbane and I'm, I competed in Tokyo this year. And yeah kind of onwards fantastic just taking it back did you have any particular inspirations growing up so I know you weren't into sport like in your early days but once you got into sport did you have any particular inspirations or people you looked up to yeah I mean I guess for me um there were there were other Paralympians that I met along the way who became role models for me 
Um, a lot of them were on on the Australian team with me, so people like Kurt Fernley um, were huge for me. Um, as I got a bit older, probably people like um, Maddie Di Rosario, she's another um, Paralympian who I know quite well, and it was people who had already sort of been in the sport for a while and mm-hmm. were able to sort of guide me through it that gave me an idea of what I was getting myself into. Um, but then also the other people in my event and just wanting to continue to see them and see how, how fast we could all run together. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. For our listeners, um, could you maybe shed some light um, on your conditions of cerebral palsy, uh, what it consists of, maybe some challenges and, and the severity of, uh, of what you have? Um, yeah, if you could shed some light, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So um, cerebral palsy is a neurological condition. Um, I developed cerebral palsy from a prenatal stroke when I was born. Um, and it essentially is a coordination-based impairment. And for us, um, I would say the most challenging thing comes with fatigue. So in terms of training, recovery is really important for us. Um, you tend to notice it more in those longer, sort of faster reps or, or races. So for us um, at the Paralympics, we, we can only compete in the 100 and the 200. That's as far as our events kind of go. Um, and it has to do with things like balance and um, I guess ease of movement is the best way I could describe it. Um, I, I'm very lucky in the sense that my cerebral palsy is quite mild. So it tends to only present when we're sort of really pushing my body. Um, and yeah, you just sort of adapt training. Okay. Yeah. And do, do some, like, do some of areas of your body, do, does it have to compensate for example, because of the, so, so how does recovery look like? Is it for you, is recovery really important and yeah, t- tell us more about, about that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, um, my left side is more affected than my right. So we tend to um, almost train one side harder than the other. So my right um, can quite easily sort of get through more reps with more weight. The left one, we tend to push. We might add a few more sets on or something just to try and make up the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, there is like there's quite a noticeable difference in um almost like muscle size on both sides of my body it's you can kind of see it it's quite common with cp um and because of that extra work that we're putting through the i guess you could say like the weaker side um the the recovery is is vital as you were saying i mean we i'm in ice baths you know five times a week and we have recovery boots we have physio twice a week there's massages pilates you sort of doing anything and everything to just kind of help the body um, hold itself together almost. <laughs> mm. That was going to be a question of mine, like what, what's your weekly routine look like in terms of, you know, you talk about recovery being really important. What does training look like also for you? Yeah, so for me, um, I guess if I were to sort of run you through it, uh, Mondays start with um, a bit of tempo running. So that's just sort of a few strides if you run through something really light um I'll then go from there into the gym and if it's one of my heavier training blocks that's where we sort of work on really upping the weight and just kind of getting as sort of into it as we can um Tuesday for me is a track session um we tend to alternate Tuesdays and Thursdays with um more technical based sessions or some of the more um I guess lactic based sessions so for example this week I've got a lactic session tomorrow and then once that's done, we'll go into the gym and we'll do some calf and hammy stuff. And then we'll jump in an ice bath. And then if I, I think I've got massage tomorrow as well. So then I'll go to massage, get that sorted Wednesday. I'm back in the gym. Um, I might have physio that day. Then Thursday, back out on the track. Um, it'll be the opposite of whatever Tuesday was. Mm. Back in the ice bath, back with the physio. Friday's gym. <laughs> Saturday's another track session. <laughs> And then Sunday's off. How are you with ice baths? Have you, uh, I bet you've got used to them now. <laughs> oh, yeah, finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I could not. I could not. <laughs> uh, the first ice bath back from Tokyo was a shock to the systems. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the worst thing about training, the ice baths? The first, yeah, that first one back, absolutely. But it is at the moment not the worst thing about training. Training is the hardest yeah. thing about training at the moment <laughs> okay 
Well, taking it back to your career then, uh, your first major overseas competition was in Doha in 2015. You actually won gold in both T3500 meters and 200 meter events. Um, considering it was your first major competition, how did that feel for you? Um, to be honest, I, I went in quite naive. Obviously, I was still quite young. I was in my second year of high school. So I kind of barely knew what was going on there, let alone in sort of elite sport. Um, lucky for me, it was a very small kind of meet. So I genuinely remember kind of showing up very quickly, learning the ropes and just sort of going along with the processes that you're sort of just shown as, as you go. Um, call room was probably the most intimidating thing I'd ever done. And uh, I'm not sure how much you guys know about it, but with call room, before you race, they take you into a tent and you kind of sit there with your competitors for anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes. And then they'll take you into another one and you're still sitting with them and then you go out and race. So I walked into my first call room at a world championships and had to sit there with my competitors and I was like, I don't know, do I talk to them? Do I not? Like, what do you, what's the etiquette before you race someone at a world champs? Um, so that was probably the biggest thing for me, just that all that in-between time. Um, yeah. But, yeah. And were you much more younger than the other competitors also? Because that could have played a, a role, you know, in the, like whether you should talk to them or not, or, you know, it's, it's, it's always difficult when you're younger, that younger athlete, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, funnily enough, I would say that my two closest competitors were all pretty close in age. I think um, I'm 20. I think um, the, there's a girl from the UK who I compete against, Maria. She's, I think she's 21. And then um, our competitor from China, I think she's like 22 or 23. So at the time, like, yeah, we would have all been pretty close in age, which probably made it all a bit more surreal for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about this competition, you've been quite humble because you also broke two event world records at that event. Like, how did that feel, breaking? I mean, world records so young. It must have been unreal. It was, yeah. I mean, like I said, I think I was so honestly clueless about the whole thing that I kind of crossed the finish line and they were sort of, you know, they're like, oh, it was a world record. And I was like, cool, okay, That's great. That's- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It doesn't really, it takes a while to sink in. I think it's more now that I'm older and like the training means more to me and things are harder and, you know, things don't come as easy to you now as they do when you're really young. So I kind of look back now and I'm like, God, like I wish I'd really sort of lived in that moment a little bit longer. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was crazy. It's that classic thing where you don't realise uh, what you have until it's gone and you don't realise <laughs> you're in the good times, you know, um, but I mean, you carried on breaking records from 2015 to 2018. You were still breaking records year on year. How was that? How did that feel? Did you feel like you was in some sort of flow state where, you know, you, you could just go to an event and, and somehow break records again? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. It is one of those things for me where I don't think I ever really know how fast I'm going to run until I, I do it. And mm-hmm. I think in the lead up to Tokyo, that was the biggest thing for me. I was saying to my coach again and again, I was like, I just don't feel fast. I just don't think I'm where I need to be. And then we were probably about a month out from Tokyo and we had this little meet up in Cairns in Northern Australia and no one was there, literally nobody. And I ran this 200 and broke a world record then um, just before Tokyo. And he, he came up to me once I crossed the finish line and someone yelled the time out across the track and he just turns to me and he's like, now do you believe you're running fast? Like has it sunk in yet? Um, yeah. And that, that's what I love about it. It's the feeling like you run a race, you're critical about it, you're thinking about it the way you would anything that you do in training. And then suddenly it comes out that it was actually actually pretty good. And that's, mm. that's the feeling that I love. I was going to ask, so obviously being such a young athlete, I guess your parents' um, role was so important during that period of you developing as an athlete. So could you kind of maybe shed light on how important they were maybe during this period and how helpful they were to you yeah definitely I mean I think the biggest thing for me growing up was that they never pushed me to do anything I didn't want to do and that has been so important through this entire this entire thing because when I was 14 and 15 and had no idea what I was doing they were willing to to sort of learn it with me and sort of figure it out as I went and it was that willingness to just sort of jump on board and be there for me as their daughter, not just me as sort of like a a Paralympian or an athlete. 
that made it easier because at the end of the day, I came home to parents that cared about my whole day, not just like how training went or what the next comp was. And then when I decided to take time off um, from sport to finish school, they were really supportive of, of that as well. So no decision to leave or come back was ever difficult for me because of their sort of, I guess, understanding of me as a person. Mm. They must have been delighted as well, traveling at all these places that you uh, brought them to uh, <laughs> around the world. Um, yeah. yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Just t- taking it back to, uh, you mentioned the um, in-between events, uh, having that time. Have you implemented any strategies to help you, you know, um, fill out those times where you keep your mind occupied? Yeah, I think for me, I guess... Um, distraction with a purpose has always been really, really helpful for me. And they're always really random things. I guess if we're talking in the lead up to, to major comp, um, there have been various sort of (laughs) fixations over the years. I think, um, before my London comp, it was, um, Michael McIntyre stand-up comedy. It got me through weeks (laughs) of waiting. (laughs) Um, And then I'm quite a keen reader. So like, I would just sit and read for hours and just kind of not think too much about what I needed to do. There was a time and a place for thinking about sport and competing and that, I guess, separation of time was really important to me. Yeah, I think taking your mind off things to not overthink is really important. It's been a common theme across a lot of our podcasts with elite athletes. So definitely me and John are also uh, like British comedians. Uh, We love a John came around the other day and we was literally watching Lee Evans clips uh, for days. <laughs> what a legend. What a legend. He, he sweats just like John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. I just don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. Um, so you mentioned that um, you don't know how fast you're going to run and, and, until you actually run it. Mm. How, how does that hinder you, do you think? Because... In, in training, do you see clear progression or are you quite inconsistent with your performances in training? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, I think it can be quite consistent. I think my, okay. my coach is great at um, being quite clear with me on where I'm at and where I need to be. Um, we obviously have goals to meet at certain times and he'll be upfront with me if I'm meeting them or if I'm not. Um, I... Uh, I'm the kind of person when I get probably two or three weeks out from comp, I I tell him to stop telling me my times and my results in various things, just because I feel like I'm so close to, you know, that big event that no major change can, can be done at that point. So I want to be able to prepare, compete and almost compete blind in a way and just go into it and trust the process that I've spent so long sort of learning. And that's, sort of the most important thing for me. That's what I was about to say. I think that provides huge value for our listeners that, you know, don't focus on the result, more focus on the process. Uh, rather than just trying to hit a time, hit a time, hit a time, prepare as best you can and you'll probably see the results even better. So definitely. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because it's really important. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So after, so you you mentioned previously that you, you took a break after the Commonwealth Games. Um, so... What led you to kind of take this break? Did you feel that was it for you in terms of, you know, competing or tell us more? Yeah, it was a really, it was an interesting time. I think because I'd spent most of my high school years in this sort of world, a very focused elite sport, uh, (laughs) embarrassingly, there was a big part of me that just wanted to be like everybody else at school. And I was convinced I was missing out on something huge. So there are a few things. That was one element. Um, another part of it was just that I felt like I'd kind of lost my my reason why for doing what I did. And that was really important to me. I think when I came back, that was really important to me to have that reason. Um, but when I took that time away, I, yeah, I thought that was the end of my running career for me. I was um, if you'd asked me back then post Commonwealth Games, I would have said, yeah, no, you're never seeing me on another athletics track ever again. Um, and it was it was more because I sort of I got home one night after my event at Com Games and I had my um, gold medal in like a little box and I put it on the table in front of me and I kind of looked at it and I thought, 
everything that I have done up until this point, the things that you miss out on, the things that you choose to do over other things, those choices that you make as an athlete, was that worth what I have sitting in front of me right now? And it hit me so hard because I looked at it and I was like, no, like that doesn't feel like it means anything to me right now. Mm. And so for me, that was a huge, um, I don't know, almost red flag for me. I was like, I need to take some time away. I need to reassess what it is I want and what I need to do. And I thought that it was taking more of a toll on my mental health than it was sort of making me a better athlete. So that was a big part of it. Um, but also school was just something that was really important to me. I, I knew what I wanted to study at uni and I knew how well I needed to do in year 12 to get into the course I wanted to do. And I didn't want anything to sort of, I guess, get in the way of that. So yeah, there are a few reasons, but that was most of them. <laughs> yeah. I think that's very brave of you. And also at such a young age, very like conscious to be able to be able to do that and reflect on your own experiences and, and do something for you rather than what others want. Um, maybe that's sometimes that's the things that I struggle with. So it's definitely that you were able to do that is really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, did you feel it was hard to balance school as well as training then um, and, and going to all these events? Uh, did you feel like it affected your school a lot? Um, academically, no. I had fantastic teachers who were really good at, um, I guess, helping me wherever I needed it. It's the same at uni. Um, yeah. People really want to see you succeed. And that as long as I was able to communicate that with the people that I needed to communicate it to, then mm. that was fine. Um, it was probably more on a social level that I felt like I was missing out almost. I mean, there aren't many 14 to 17-year-old kids that can appreciate that you have to be up for training in the morning and therefore can't do whatever it is they want to do on a Friday night. And I think it was that element that I found the most challenging, feeling like I couldn't relate to anybody else my age. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult because you're you're really, really young, like competing high level. We had Keely Hodgkinson that came on that kind of talked about a similar topic and maybe she didn't have that um, realisation because she was able to kind of make the most of those 14, 15, 16 years, years of age. But yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I, I don't blame you. Like, I've, I don't know what, how I'd react in, in, that kind of, in that kind of situation. But yeah, like, like what he said, very brave of you and uh, very mature as well. Of, of you to, to in terms of like the support you received during this period. So how did your kind of coaches react to, to you kind of wanting this break, would you say? And, and your family as well? Yeah, um, my, my family were really good about it. Um, they obviously understood how much I... I wanted to do well at school. They knew how much that meant to me. Um, I really wanted to study psych at uni and they they knew that as well. So I think they were all for me doing whatever it was I felt I needed to do <laughs> and wanted to get there. Yeah, um, yeah I think my, my coach at the time, we, we'd had a few conversations before the Commonwealth Games where he'd sort of said to me, I'm not sure how much more I can offer you as an elite athlete. He um, he coached mostly mostly high school kids. That's how I met him. Um, so having a Paralympian who was probably going to go on to compete at more Paralympic Games was obviously like a huge challenge that he hadn't had before. Um, and for me, I was getting older and I knew that if I was to go back to athletics, I, I, I needed to sort of have a coach that I guess – um, I hadn't had since I was 14, like someone who didn't know me as a student, but someone who knew me as a person. Um, so when I came back to athletics, I actually changed coaches. So um, I'm with a different coach now to who I, who I started with. And I think that change of environment, that change of coach was really important for a complete sort of switch in perspective when I came back. Um, and it made the whole thing, the time away, the time coming back so much easier. Mm. we have a lot of coaches who do listen to this podcast when you were looking for that new coach what were some of the values you looked for in a, in a good coach I for me the thing that stands out to me the most about Paul that's my coach's name um he he's fantastic at listening and he's brilliant at understanding an athlete as more than just a an athlete and more than just a statistic like we're not just people who show up to training and get reps done and then go home and then show up to training again Mm. um in my um training diary 
we actually have it set out so that you have the training I did that day, you have how it felt, any issues with my body, um, anything I thought about it. And then there's another section that's just labeled outside. And that's anything that's happening in the rest of my life that could be impacting training or just impacting how I am day to day. So for me, that was the biggest thing. And that's what I, I love about, about Paul is his ability to really care about me. And it, it, it builds a kind of trust and relationship that you, you don't have with those, those school coaches who only know you as, as an athlete. So, um, yeah. 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 I think that's really important also. Do you feel that um, maybe that empathetic um, side is more important than, you know, the technical side of your sport and having a coach that just drills into you um, things that are going to make you better as a athlete, but not as a person. Uh, do you think the yeah. other side is more important? I think honestly, yes. I think uh, at the end of the day, anyone can teach you good, good technique and good form and how to run well. I think that's, that's something you can pick up from, from study and from years of learning. Um, and I think that's so valuable. Um, but having said that, it's that sort of holistic view and that overall understanding of the person you're working with that almost allows you to tailor that knowledge to, to your athlete. And it's that, um, I guess, specific sort of approach that, that makes a great coach. And it's, yeah, it just creates an environment that you want to be in and somewhere you want to be every day, which is lucky because you have to be. <laughs> that's a clip right there. Uh, that's a, that was a really good, what well summed up, um, yeah, uh, that topic. Um, what was your first, so, so you spoke about the Paralympics there uh, previously. What was your first Paralympic experience in Rio like? What yeah. were your sort of feelings going into it? Were you anxious, nervous, or was you quite excited? I was terrified. <laughs> I would be the um, same. <laughs> I, um, I, just before Rio, um, we knew that I was going, I knew that I was going to move schools. So I decided that the school I was at wasn't really the right fit for me and I wanted to move. So there was a lot of change happening in that, in that year. Um, then I went away to Rio with a lot of people sort of saying, you know, when's the next world record? How fast are you going to run? can't wait to see your, your Paralympic gold medals. Um, there's this little joke that you have within the, the Paralympic team that I heard a lot in Rio, which is if you win gold, you get to fly back business class or first class or something. Okay. Um, and I was like, all right, well. I love that. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got to happen. Yeah. Um, and having the previous year, having um, won both of my events and broken those world records, I felt like there was so much pressure to to do it when it when it mattered and to do it where it counts so uh this is probably where like a lot of my sports psych journey kind of started because I went to that Paralympic Games and I was so distracted by by that end result by by those gold medals and those times and I actually got to the start line on the day and there was an athlete there I'd never seen before never heard of didn't know I was going to be there and she she beat me in both of my both of my events. She um, won gold. She broke one of my world records, I think. Um, and it was it just completely changed how I perceived what I did. I think up until that point, it had seemed almost um, ridiculously sort of simple. And I was like, yeah, I'll just show up and I'll run and I'll do well and that's it. And it was very simplistic for me. And then I remember running my first event. I think it was the 200 in Rio that was first. And I crossed the line second. And I remember looking up at the board and just kind of thinking, I don't know what to do. Like I didn't do what I thought I was supposed to do. I feel like I failed. It was this huge sort of sense of dread. And because I was so young, I didn't know how to approach that in a way that made sense to me. So I came off the track and walked straight into the media strip and they go, how do you feel? Like you just ran at your first Paralympics and came second. You must feel great. And on the inside, I was like, oh, my God, I've just let everybody down and went and stood in front of these cameras and was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel great. I can't wait to come back in two days and do it again. Like I was lying. And um, that that was huge for me. It was it was the first time I really had to learn how to deal with um, with failure and like disappointment um, in a really big way. What was some of the, how did you cope with that experience then? Obviously, after the event, um, 
was it was it quite detrimental to you? And were there any strategies you put in place? You mentioned that you um, you wanted to wanted to study psych. Uh, with any psychological strategies that you implemented to help cope with this? Yeah, so I think following Rio was when I, I really started working with sports psychs. Okay. Um, that was when the focus around the process and what you're there to do and being quite practical about your focus really began to sort of resonate with me. Um, you sort of realise that the distraction of that end result is completely unhelpful and it's about this shift in focus um, rather than trying to get rid of the worry, the anxiety, the all the what ifs, it's more deciding to sort of focus on what you need to do. And that was huge for me. Um, going into London the following year, I was hospitalised with tonsillitis two weeks out from my events in London. And my coach came to see me in hospital and he was like, if you were running heats and finals, I'd be pulling you out of these world champs. I ended up on the start line of the 200 in London so calm because I was like I was so sick two weeks ago there's no yes. way this is going to go how anyone wants it to go um ran the 200 uh won the event and then had my 100 two days later showed up again on the start line like mm, I'm not really hoping for anything I'm just going to run my race came out ran the race broke the world record and won that one as well so <laughs> it just it was just one of those events where it showed to me that the importance of focus and how you can't predict anything in those situations. Um, so it was a big two years. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> it seems to be a, it seems to be a common theme when you, you get an injury or you're, you're ill uh, very close to the event. We had Scott Lincoln also on uh, the shopper who got injured during an event, and uh, he just went into the the competition without any pressure on himself because he felt as if he had like a sort of disadvantage compared to the others so yeah. it's, it's really interesting that kind of trend like how can you how, like mentally how can you replicate that for other mm. events I, I don't know the answer but it's, it's interesting to, mm. to for sure okay so approaching the tokyo 2020 olympic paralympics um how did you approach going into that and what were your feelings go, going into that? I think um, having had some time away, I sort of had the privilege of feeling like I was flying under the radar a little bit, whether or not that was true. I think I, I knew that I was coming back an athlete who had put in more work, more time. Um, the, the, the psych side of it was so much more important to me. So I think... I, I knew I wanted to go out to these Paralympics and not have them be a reflection of my first. I really wanted them to be a different games. And I had no idea how I would do. Um, I knew that my the same competitor I had in, in Rio would be in Tokyo. I knew very well that I would be up against a very similar challenge. And for me, it was just about dealing with that challenge differently to how I did last time. Um, and, yeah, I think I... I've said a few times to a couple of people uh, that Tokyo was so different for me because I realised how much I guess I'd learnt in those few years since I'd last competed at the Paralympics. Um, so while there was still an element of, I guess, um, I don't want to say disappointment, I guess almost um, like there was a bit of a letdown there in the sense I was like, oh, was so close again. But it was, it felt different this time. And there was an element of pride. There was an element of knowing I'd done everything I could do. And that was kind of all that mattered to me. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the delayed, the fact that the games were delayed, was that kind of helpful for you? Because obviously a few years prior, you took like years off. So did you kind of use that, that year as a, to your advantage to maybe develop areas of weaknesses or? Yeah, exactly. I, um, I actually started working with my new coach uh, at the start of 2020 and initially the plan was that he would sort of coach me back to fitness and then I would stay in Melbourne and find a different coach uh, long term. But when COVID hit, uh, we were doing training sessions for probably, I mean, honestly, most of 2020 via Zoom. I was in Melbourne, he was in Brisbane and we'd be going down to the park and he'd be on the other side of the camera and I'd just be getting stuff done. And then um, that was kind of all it was about, was building that fitness and getting me back somewhere that was sort of workable. Um, 
And then once I was at that point, I had no choice but to move up to Brisbane. The, the lockdowns in Melbourne were too harsh for me to really be able to do much. And Brisbane was lucky enough to not be too badly affected by COVID. So I made the move and um, yeah, we were able to put in the time and the effort that I needed to be Tokyo ready. And I'd said before, I'd said 12 months earlier, if I'm not fit enough to go to Tokyo and have a really good chance of winning that event, then I'm not going. Like it's all about good prep for me. And that extra year bought me that time. 100%. What was the Paralympics like actually with the COVID restrictions like around the village and things like that? I think it was definitely odd and it was definitely different. There was yeah. no denying that. Um, I think it's what I really liked about it was that we, we were forced to sort of spend more time as a team. Um, different countries went about it differently. Australia was quite um, strict on their rules. So we spent a lot of time in our building. Um, we weren't able to go to the dining hall or really access other parts of the, of the village at all. So we were very self-sufficient. I think a lot of other countries found that quite amusing <laughs> that we were so, um, we appeared so scared. Um, so I think, you know, obviously the, the rules, the, the, the masks, the daily COVID tests were all strange to begin with but you you just adjust so quickly and, and in those environments you just do what you need to do in order to make sure you can get to the start of your event that's all that matters so it was odd but it definitely didn't catch you off guard as, as much as you sort of expected it to so leading up to like let's say day of competition talk us through if you have like a, a particular routine so like from when you wake up like do you have a like a sort of ritual until the time you actually set feet on, on the track and field? Like, tell us more about, about that, if you have any, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, funnily enough, as a, as a bit of a side note, the day before my 100 in Tokyo, so literally like 24 hours before my race, I called um, my sports psych back in, in, in Brisbane and uh, he was like, how are you going? How's prep going? Are you good to go over tomorrow? And I was like, I don't know. And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, what happens if I don't win tomorrow? And he was like, oh, well, you don't win. And I was like, okay, what happens if I what happens if I do? And he's like, oh, well, then you do. And that's great. And I was like, nope, not happy with either of those. <laughs> I was like, not <laughs> and so that was where we had the opportunity again to like refocus on that process. Like it's just reiterated over and over again mm. and figure out what it is you need to do just to get there and get it done. And that's all that matters. So me that meant that in that week leading up to my comp I was my heat for the 100 which was my first event was um I think it was in the morning around 10 a.m so I was up at six every morning in the week leading up to that to make sure that I was awake and my body was used to being up at that time and there's a lot of sort of pre-adjustment that happens you train consistently you don't oversleep you don't undersleep you try and keep things as consistent as possible and I think that's the prep that's the most important. Um, day of, you sort of, you get up, you sort of take a few minutes to like <laughs> let it sink in what you have to do. Um, and then it all just happens so quickly. You know, your bags mm. packed the night before. These are the things you learn after making a mistake before. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, we, we make sure at the track really early, I've got an hour to warm up. It's just making things as easy as possible, really. Mm. 100%. Um, something I've started asking all our guests um, is what are some characteristics and traits they feel make them so successful? So what are some psychological characteristics and traits you feel make a successful sprinter? <laughs> I think um, it's, I know I've said it like a hundred times, but it's this ability to, uh, or attempt, I guess, to sort of focus on the right things at the right time. Um, my, I tell this story to like literally everybody, but my sports psych has a really great, I guess, sort of metaphor, or like analogy for it. We, we spoke about this concept of, um, a margarita pizza. And the idea behind that is that it's, it's simple, but when it's really good, it's really good. Um, so leading into comp, we establish what are three or four things, two or three, three or four things that make the perfect race or that you have to do in order to run well and that could be a, a block start cue it could be a cue halfway down 100 meters straight it could be something you do in your warm-up 
and that's all you need to think about. And the funny thing about that was that I was literally standing behind the blocks of my 100-meter final in Tokyo, just like whispering to myself, margarita pizza, margarita pizza. And and it works. You sound so insane to anyone standing next to you on the start line, but it's, it's things like that. I have, I love cues that um, create a visual or um, a couple words that just help to remind me what, what I'm doing. I had a bracelet on in Tokyo that had the letters MTJT on them. And that stood for more than just this, which was something that, we'd also discussed, I'd also discussed with my sports psych, this idea that you're not the results that you get on the track. You're not just the athlete that shows up on the day. You're so much more than that. And Mm. I think that has been something that's resonated me, resonated with me since. Yeah. Since. Okay. In terms of your arousal levels, it seems that you need to be quite calm to compete. Is that, is that right? Would you say that's really important to you being calm rather than being the other end where you need to get quite hyped for a race? Uh, where would you fall on that continuum yeah it's a funny one because I think it's it's that fine line between sort of standing on the start line and being like I need to be calm in order to run well and I think that's a trap I've fallen into before um and I think for me it's you know like there's obviously an element of hype that I love pre-race like you really sort of get into it but it's almost worrying less about those sort of physical sensations of excitement, nerves, whether or not you're calm, it's almost completely irrelevant. It's that's something I find really hard to wrap my head around, but mm. we're getting there. I think this idea that no matter how you feel, it doesn't impact your ability to execute a plan. Yeah. And a lot of people think it does. A lot of people think that if you're too nervous, you won't, you won't run well. If you're really calm, then you'll be so focused and perfect. Or, you know, there's a lot of sort of, misconception I think around how you feel impacting what you do and I think every time I show up to a games and feel different and sometimes get the same result or sometimes get a different result you realize it doesn't really matter it's just your ability to do what you do yeah I agree you you spoke a lot there about working with sports psychs how much would you recommend other athletes to work with sports psychologists do you feel like it's really improved you as a not as an athlete but as a person Talk us through how much you would recommend that. Yeah, highly. I I have a sports psychologist that I work with. I also have a clinical psych that I work with. And I I love the value that they add to, to I guess, the things that you deal with. I mean, you I, I feel like so many athletes go into comp and they go into training and they sort of have that thought of, oh, I shouldn't feel like this, or I maybe, you know, I should be thinking this, or all the best athletes super calm before they compete or they're super hyped and maybe I should be doing that and I found that sports psych specifically has really helped to debunk those myths for me um they help you to sort of reflect on what it is you're trying to get out of what you do um while also sort of offering a different perspective and I think that's the biggest thing for me I think it's really important that you you have a psych that you gel with and someone who you feel comfortable with um but once you have that it's yeah it's it's a game changer yeah definitely um so obviously you studied psychology so you're currently doing a bachelor's degree in behavioral science at queensland university um so have you have you been able to apply some of the things that you've learned at university to yourself so obviously you've worked with a sports psychologist but maybe in your lessons or in your modules have you been able to apply anything or not yet (laughs) um yeah I think so I mean I I took a unit uh this semester that was on um different frameworks of psychology and Mm. we looked a lot at um a lot of different ones but one that we looked at was um acceptance and commitment therapy and that's one that's that my sports psych uses so for me actually being able to go back and learn the theory behind act and behind how um I guess uh, psychologists and counsellors choose to use that in order to to inspire change or to sort of I guess enlighten their clients a little bit was great for me because I, I almost understood what my sports psych was trying to do and I could I guess logically wrap my head around it, it didn't make it any easier to apply to myself unfortunately <laughs> but it was great to have that background detail and I'm I love it anyway so it was just fun to learn (laughs) Mm. is this something you'd want to pursue after your athletic career 
Absolutely. I I have no shadow of a doubt that I will end up in the field of psychology in some capacity. I don't know if it'll be sports psych um, or, you know, practicing psych in, in some way, but uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that means a lot to me. It's something I'm very passionate about and uh, could literally talk about for hours. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so obviously that's a goal of yours. Um, in terms of, if I was to ask you a question, what are your current goals and ambitions now that you've um, competed in two Paralympic Games, won five Paralympic medals, you know, what are your goals and ambitions going forward in the future? Um, I think sports-wise, I would like to remain in athletics as long as I felt like it was something that I wanted, to be honest. I mean, for as long as it's something that drives me and I'm passionate about, then I want to be doing it. Um, obviously, Paris is the next Paralympics and I'm very keen to end up there. Yeah. Um, I have a very sneaky goal of having a full set of, of gold medals. So <laughs> one from world champs, com games and a Paralympics. So I'm chasing that Paralympic one. Um, that, that would be me on the track. I think outside of that, um, my, my studies are really important to me. I really want to um, get through my psych degree. Ideally uh, I'd like to get into honors and potentially masters and just sort of um, yeah, get through that degree and get to a place where I could, practice if I wanted to um so yeah I guess it's a tricky one because for me my athletic goals and my I guess study and career goals are very much on par with each other which can create a bit of a difficult <laughs> juggling yeah. game in the day but yeah how have you found balance in that um at the moment it's uh uni is definitely easier than than school in terms of balance um yeah. I'm studying part-time at the moment so yeah. I can take two units a semester and just kind of work my way through it. Um, next year could be a different story where we're hoping to be traveling uh, early next year on a bit of a European circuit, which will obviously take me away from uni. Um, but if I can study uh, online, then that would be ideal. But yeah, it's, it's trying to keep all the things that are important to you on this like scale of balance at all times. And it's, it's tricky. Yeah, hundred percent. We we both have those problems as well with uh, work and, and studying as well. So I definitely feel you on that one. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of all our questions, they were all the questions we had for you. But obviously, we asked on social media if our audience had got any questions for you. And this is just a segment where we reel them off one for one and get your insight into their questions. So the first one is: um, What are your hobbies outside of sport? Um, I'm. I'm a keen reader and I'm also a very keen writer. So any yeah. excuse to uh, <laughs> to just write anything is, is um, yeah, super exciting for me. I, I did an, an article recently on um, body image in elite sport and how that differs for able-bodied and Paralympic athletes. And um, I love that. So, mm. yeah, I think they'd be my two biggest ones. Okay. Nice. So the second question was, do you have any catchphrases you live by? Uh, yes. <laughs> so I, I kind of mentioned it before um, and it's definitely gone through a few phases of development, but more than just this is probably my biggest one at the moment. I think uh, it's so applicable to anything that I do or anyone, anything that anyone does. I mean, you know, you could say, you know, I'm more than just an athlete. I'm more than just my results. I'm more than just my grades. I'm more than just what I study. I think that for me has been such a grounding and um, I guess reassuring thing. I I come back to it whenever things feel really sort of overwhelming or like it's the end of the world and they don't go, they don't go the right way. So yes, MTJT, you're more than just this. I love that. I think I'll apply that to my life as well. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Yeah. Um, Third one is, have you got any advice for young athletes? Um, I think two things. One, enjoy it and make sure you're doing it because you enjoy it. And the second thing would be to be clear on, it depends how old you are, but to be clear on your reason why. If someone were to say, why do you swim? Why do you run? Why do you do whatever it is you're doing? If you can come back to them and say, I do it because I love it. I do it because I really want to make a team of some kind or because, I don't know, it's something I do with my friends. If you have a reason that I think aligns with something that you value and something that's true to you, then I think that's a really good indication that you're doing things for the right reason. 
and it means that wherever that goes, whether that be, you know, you continue to do it for fun every Saturday or you somehow end up at an Olympic or Paralympic Games, um, that doesn't really make a difference as to why you're doing it. Fantastic. So the last question was, where's the favourite place you've competed at so far? London, hands down. Really? London World Cup, yeah, 2017 was the most incredible event. I And I think um, that's, that's saying something considering I literally had a home a home games at one point. But the the way that they, the, I guess, um, the community got around Paralympic sport and para sport was something I had never seen before. Um, there is this appreciation for what para athletes do that I just don't see in Australia. Um, and showing up, I just, I so vividly remember being behind the blocks on my first start line and the crowds were insane. And then as we were sort of running around the 200 meter bend onto the straight, it, I've, li- I've never felt anything like that. And I think it's that atmosphere. It's that feeling like those people that are there are really invested in what you do and really care that just completely changes the whole, I guess, conversation around around Paralympic sport and I think we're slowly heading in that direction but it was yeah it was a huge eye opener for me seeing what passion for para sport looks like and obviously it was a great comeback event too so it's it <laughs> good time uh, I love that rep in London yeah uh, London. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in terms of all the questions we had for you they were all the questions so um no thanks so much for coming on uh, I think you provided a lot of value for our listeners um especially for me in terms of focusing on the process you know the coach athlete relationship I think is it's definitely some takeaways for me and for our listeners so you know thanks so much for coming on we really enjoyed it awesome thank you so much for having me yeah, uh, this we normally give the guest uh, a moment to shout anything out they've got going on or if they want to say anything or your socials and that will be in the description of the YouTube video. So is there anything you want to say? Awesome. I think that's, oh, I think socials the main thing. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's all. I think we've got, we've got a few things um, going on in the background at the moment that'll hopefully be up soon in terms of websites and blogs and things like that. But socials okay. are a good place Sweet. Fantastic. Okay. So we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could please share this with your friends or someone you would feel would benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, comment down below any questions or guess you'd like us to get on in the future. Also, go follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Links will be in the description of the YouTube video. Or find us at Master in the Mind podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one.